Uh, today we're going to be doing chapter 29 of our Sketches from Church History by S.M. Houghton. Specifically, we're going to be looking at Scotland transformed, or how the Reformation came to Scotland specifically. Uh, I'm going to specifically uh, be talking also a little about um, my own uh, experiences in Scotland, uh, just briefly. Most importantly, obviously, we'll be talking about uh, what these men did. But first, uh, before we get started, let us go to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we do thank you so much uh, that you've not only given us your inerrant and inspired word, but you also have uh, given us a testimony in history of your providential working. We know that were it not for you, Lord, that uh, the church would have long ago been stamped out by the forces that stand against it. We know the devil hates not only the Son of God, but also his people and desires to see them oppressed, scattered, beaten down, and destroyed wherever he can. And Scotland was a place where they were sorely put to trial. But we thank you that you raised up men who shone as lights in the darkness, men who brought the candle of the Reformation uh, to that country, men who were after darkness light, men like John Knox, but also other men like Patrick Hamilton. We pray, Lord, you would give us the same kind of fervent spirit and that it would be our desire to bring our own light to our homes, our communities, our, our cities, and indeed, O oh Lord, to the world via the new highways and byways that the internet provides us with. Lord, may we follow the example of these steadfast men, and we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Chapter 29, Scotland Transformed. It is customary to hold that the man who, above all others, brought the Reformation into Scotland was the intrepid John Knox. Certainly Knox is Scotland's greatest reformer, but two others at least deserve mention even in such a brief history as this. Indeed, the account must go back earlier than the 16th century, for Scotland was not without its Lollard martyrs, notably Paul Craw, a native of Bohemia who was burned at the stake at St. Andrews, Fifeshire, in 1433, with a ball of brass in his mouth to prevent him from exhorting the onlookers. Scotland's first Reformation martyr was Patrick Hamilton, whose mother was in direct line of descent from King James II of the House of Stuart. For a short time, he studied at Wittenberg, the city of Martin Luther, and on his return to Scotland, he boldly preached Protestant doctrine. As a result, in 1528, James Beaton, the Archbishop of St. Andrews, resolved upon his death. Much power was in Beaton's hands for the uh, king, James V, was a mere youth of 16, and the archbishop was so powerful in the state as in the church. Hamilton was arrested, confined in a dungeon at St. Andrew's Castle by the sea, and then brought to trial. He was charged with numerous heresies, a Dominican friar named Alexander Campbell disputing against him. At the stake, the fire was slow in burning, and his agonies were prolonged. To Campbell, he said, Brother, you do not in your heart believe that I am a heretic. Fox's Book of Martyrs records that he cited the friar to appear before the high God as judge of all men to answer on or before a certain day of the next month whether his accusation was just or not, and adds that the said friar died immediately before the said day came. Patrick Hamilton's influence in Scotland was great. It is said that his reek, that is the smoke from his burning, infected all it blew on. In other words, many were drawn to the Reformation by his testimony, what are termed Patrick's pleas or places, his points of Reformation doctrine, became a cornerstone of Protestant theology in Scotland and England. Now, just a, a word about Patrick Hamilton. Here's a sad fact. I went to the University of St. Andrews. That was my, uh, my alma mater in university. 
Uh, and every day that I had uh, classes in St. Salvatore's, which was a uh, particular area of the university, it was the, the central area of the quad, and you, you would walk in through a gate, and you walked over a place where the initials P.H. were, and those initials marked the spot upon which Patrick Hamilton was burned. I walked over that spot as an atheist, an angry young atheist, I might add, without noting them or thinking much of them at all. It was nothing to me. Uh, the even sadder thing was just down the road uh, was the castle where he was, uh, he was held, and also uh, the graveyard where uh, Samuel Rutherford is buried. Uh, all of these great reformed men, uh, their remains and their testimonies all about me. And yet, fool that I was, I only really con I was concerned with the things of the flesh, and particularly the pubs of St. Andrews. I could have told you more about them than I certainly could the, uh, the martyrs and the great testimony and witness that they, uh, uh, they left. But uh, I'm thankful to God that he um, had better plans for me than I had for myself. And I'm thankful for the men that uh, he raised up, whose testimony today I read and profit from, men like Patrick Hamilton. Patrick Hamilton, incidentally, was... Um, not really uh, Calvinistic. He was a, uh, a student of Luther and thus uh, brought Lutheran doctrine specifically to uh, to Scotland, but at this point in time, the streams are very, uh, very similar. It's only really under the influence of Melanchthon later on that Lutheranism diverges uh, very strongly from uh, uh, from Lutheranism. But moving on, or Luther Lutheranism, uh, that the Reformed doctrine, uh, Calvinism, diverges from Lutheranism. Anyway, moving back to our our text here. Uh, but Archbishop Beaton had not learned his lesson. He continued to burn Protestants. Ten years after Hamilton suffered, five were burned on the Castle Hill at Edinburgh that the people of Scotland's capital city and for miles around might see the blazing pile and take warning. But God raised up fresh witnesses to his truth, and best known of them in the 1540s being George Wisher, at one time a schoolmaster in Montrose. Persecuted in Scotland for his faith, he found ref uh, refuge in the Bristol area of England where for a short while his courage failed him and he burned his faggot, a ceremony devised to show that the participant confessed that he deserved the stake. Soon, however, he found his way to Germany and Switzerland where his faith was strengthened and after a time he returned to his native land, resolved to preach the gospel to his countrymen. Crowds flocked to hear him and he began to address them in the open air, convinced as he declared that Scotland would be illuminated with the light of Christ's gospel as clearly as ever was any realm since the days of the apostles. But another Beaton was now in power, Cardinal David Beaton, nephew of James Beaton, and he brought Wishart to trial at St. Andrews. The reformer urged that all teaching must be tested by scripture. For example, during his trial, the subject of purgatory was debated. Turning to his accusers, Wishart said, if you have any testimony of the scriptures by which you may prove any such place, show it before this auditory. But says Fox, this accuser had not a word to say. Oh, I'm sorry, this is Fox speaking. This accuser had not a word to say for himself. He was as dumb as a beetle in that matter. As in the case of Hamilton, the stake was erected outside St. Andrew's Castle, the tower immediately opposite being fitted with tapestry and cushions so that the higher clergy might witness the burning at their ease. Wishart died nobly before the flames did their work. He announced to the people, He who from yonder place beholds me with such pride shall within a few days lie in the, uh, in the same as ignominiously, ignominiously, sorry, as he is now seen proudly to rest himself. 
About three months later, the cardinal met his death, abandoned his enemies, overcoming all resistance, burst into his apartments, and killed him out of hand. The murder was a breach of God's law. Avenge not yourselves, says the scripture. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, uh, repay, saith the Lord. Yet, with the words of a Scottish historian, we may well agree. Viewed as an event in providence, we may recognize in it a just judgment from God on a cruel persecutor. While at the same time considered as the deed of a man, we condemn the instruments whose passions were overruled for accomplishing it. As for the cardinal, I grant he was a man we well could want and will forget him soon. And yet I think the sooth to say, although the loon is well away, the deed was foully done. In other words, um, and uh, we must agree with this one, although Beaton was obviously an enemy of the faith, an enemy of uh, his people, uh, that is Christ's people, uh, and uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing, uh, to murder him out of hand in his own apartment uh, was obviously not a Christian deed. Unfortunately, one of the things that we're going to see in Christian history is that there have been plenty of times when Christians have taken up arms in order to attempt to advance the gospel. Uh, generally speaking, whenever this happens, it fails. Um, the Lord will not have his gospel advanced in the way that Islam is advanced, by the sword and by murder and by uh, forcing people. Uh, to confess the faith. Whenever men are forced to confess the faith at the edge of the sword, as a general rule, their confession is false and uh, the results are awful. We saw that uh, in what happened with Charlemagne spreading the faith that way. Many of the tribes were brought in, but most of them had an insincere faith and we had uh, growth of syncretism as their previous uh, habits and rituals and ceremonies and and even their, their habits of praying to, uh, to, to female goddesses were transferred over to Mary and so on. Uh, attempting to spread the faith by force never does anything but harm. The faith is spread by the preaching of the word and heart by heart. So in any time that we take up arms in an attempt to, uh, uh, to advance Christianity, uh, generally speaking, it's, uh, it's a miserable failure and the results are bad. But we pass on to the life and work of John Knox, who gave the Scottish nation a body of Protestant doctrine and a pattern of worship that endured. He was born at Haddington in the early part of the 16th century, studied at Glasgow University, became a firm Protestant, defended Wishart from his enemies, and was owned as, in a very real sense, the martyr successor. As persecution developed, uh, he decided to seek refuge on the continent of Europe, but before he could do so, he was captured by a French force which landed at St. Andrews to assist the Scottish king. He and others were taken to France and condemned to work on French war galleys, efforts being made to bring them back to the Roman Catholic fold. In his history of the Reformation in Scotland, Knox recounts how on one occasion a glorious painted lady, an image of Mary, was presented to him to be kissed. Trouble me not, said he, to the bear, such an idol is accursed, and therefore I will not touch it. Thou shalt handle it, said several Frenchmen, at the same time thrusting it violently to his face and putting it between his hands. Knox then took the idol and, spying his opportunity, cast it into the river at the same time crying, Let her save herself! She is light enough. Let her learn to swim. After this, says Knox, uh, Knox's history, no Scotsman was urged with that idolatry. It is amazing how the Lord preserved Knox's life. I mean, after all, at this point, he was a galley slave. He could have been put to death by his captors. Uh, and yet he was not. A man of, of, uh, of great fire and great, um, 
uh, great courage throughout his life. Anyway, moving on. Knox's captivity lasted 19 months. It was not for nothing, says a historian, that the hand which gave to Scotland its liberty should itself for nearly the space of two years have worn fetters. But for a while, on release by the French, Knox thought it wise to take refuge in England, which was moving rapidly into Protestantism under Edward VI. He was appointed one of the king's chaplains. But when Mary came to the throne, he escaped to Germany and Switzerland. In Geneva, where Calvin was chief preacher, he found that uh, that which he judged to be the most perfect school of Christ that ever was in the earth since the days of the apostles. In other places, I confess Christ to be truly preached, but manners and religion so truly reformed I have not yet seen in any other place. He spent four happy years in Geneva, returning to Scotland in 1559. He found the people perplexed and confused. King James V had died 16 years previously, leaving the crown to his daughter Mary, who was born only a week before her father's death. Mary's mother, Mary of Guise, took over the control of affairs until her daughter came of age and was still at the head of affairs when Knox returned from Geneva. Mary, Queen of Scots herself in the previous year, had married the Dauphin, the heir to the French throne, who, after, who a few months later became King of France as Francis II. Mary was now Queen of France as well as Queen of Scotland, and very soon the courts of France and Spain let it be known that they regarded her as Queen of England also, for they refused to recognize Elizabeth as Mary Tudor's rightful successor. In Scotland, certain Protestant barons, who became known as the Lords of the Congregation, endeavored to make their country adopt the Protestant faith, although the Scottish government was strongly Catholic. One of the things that needs to be noted also is that, uh, and this will come into play later on uh, in the, um, uh, the Scottish attempts at revolution in the 18th century, the Highland clans were strongly uh, Roman Catholic. It was the Lowlanders, uh, the people in Edinburgh uh, and its environs in particular, who were the, the, uh, the great Scottish stronghold. Generally speaking, if you uh, were a Highland, uh, one of the Highlanders, you uh, were part of a clan and you wore a kilt, you were a Roman Catholic as a general rule. Uh, also, another thing to be noted was the incredible influence of the French throne upon the Scottish uh, throne at this point in time. Uh, the French, in essence, uh, were the force behind, obviously, Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, and desired to uh, have their influence strengthened within that country, both religiously and politically, because, of course, uh, England was their enemy, and anything that they could do to strengthen the Scots would uh, similarly take away from the power of England. England and France were essentially fighting for control of Scotland, and the French uh, eventually lost the battle when uh, King James VI of Scotland uh, became King James I of England, and you had the United Monarchy there, uh, although King James was no friend to the Reformed faith, as we shall see later on. Moving on. Um, blah, blah, blah. As soon as, Scot as Knox arrived in Scotland, he contended vigorously against idolatry and urged the people to turn to the plain truth of the gospel. Nor were his efforts in vain. His preaching was very powerful, and many embraced the truth of God's word. One of the visible signs that Scotland now experienced Reformation was the destruction of many of the buildings belonging to the Roman Church. Knox cared little or nothing for grand buildings, and especially so when they were used to propagate idolatry, yet he did not urge the wanton destruction of property. Some of his supporters, however, were prone to demonstrate enthusiasm for the Reformation by the destruction of abbeys and monasteries. Knox commenting on their work that, after all, the best way to keep the rooks from returning was to pull down their nests. Uh, it was under the influence of John Knox that the Presbyterian system of church government was introduced into Scotland. 
In the English system of church government, bishops were very powerful. The word bishop is derived from the Greek word episkopos, meaning overseer. But the Presbyterian system is based upon the authority entrusted by the church to elders, Greek presbyteros. In time to come, as we shall see, the two systems came into conflict. At first, however, they existed peaceably side by side, but historically they developed along separate lines. Another aspect of a Reformation work in Scotland was the encouragement of education. An attempt was made to establish a school in every parish for the instrument of youth, uh, for the instruction rather, of youth in true religion, grammar, and the Latin tongue. In the chief towns, colleges were set up for the education of the more gifted and capable students. In consequence, learning made great progress in the land, and Scotland became renowned for its standard of education. One very remarkable example of scholarship is recorded by a 16th century analyst, uh, a Mr. Rowe, minister at Perth boarded the children of nobility and gentry in his house and instructed them more particularly in languages. At table, the conversation was all carried on in French, and the chapter of the Bible at family worship was read by the boys in Hebrew, Greek, Latin, and French. But education was only a sideline with Knox, whose great concern was to spread the knowledge of Christ and his gospel to all parts of Scotland. He had many adversaries, for he boldly denounced the Mass and other aspects of the doctrine of the Roman Church. I have learned, he said, plainly and boldly to call wickedness by its own terms, a fig, a fig, and a spade, a spade. Concerning the mass, he said, one mass is more fearful to me than if 10,000 armed enemies were landed in any part of the realm. No wonder, therefore, that his life was so endangered. After the death of her French husband, Mary, Queen of Scots, no longer Queen of France, returned to Scotland to resume control of the government. The tenets of the Roman Church had taken deep root in her mind and heart, and it was her constant endeavor to prevent the progress of the Protestant faith in Scotland. It was inevitable, therefore, that she came into direct conflict with Knox. The Reformer's opinion of her is striking. If there be not in her, he said, a proud mind, a crafty wit, an indurate, that is a callous, heart against God and his truth, my judgment faileth me. This opinion was formed as a result of several interviews with Knox, who had with the Queen, and of these a highly interesting rec uh, record remains. On one occasion, Mary said to Knox, What are you in this commonwealth? A subject born within the same. I'm sorry, a subject born within the same, he replied. And although I am neither earl, lord, or baron in it, yet has God made me a profitable member within the same, and both my vocation and conscience require plainness of me. On hearing such words, it was with difficulty that the queen recovered her composure. But Mary had troubles other than those of religion. Her second and third marriages proved disastrous, and in 1568 she fled to England to seek the help of Elizabeth. Disastrous. Um, her second marriage, she actually had her, her husband murdered. Um, he was uh, lured into a house which she then had blown up. Uh, one of the most spectacular um, uh, uh, you know, um, acts of, of adultery uh, uh, that uh, the history records. But in any event, uh, she was a wicked, wicked woman. Uh, she was not allowed liberty, but was kept in pleasant confinement and always remained a danger to the English queen as plots were formed in her favor. Ultimately, after 20 years, Elizabeth signed Mary's death warrant, uh, and wisely so. Unfortunately, Mary was the the hub of various Roman Catholic plots and an attempt to put her on the throne of England. As long as Mary remained alive, uh, Elizabeth was never, never safe. Uh, Jesuits were constantly plotting uh, with Roman Catholics, both within and without uh, England, attempting to restore the English monarchy to the Roman Catholic Church. 
Knox died in 1572. Occupied for long years in ceaseless struggle against opposing forces, he became, as he said, weary of the world and thirsting to depart. He was buried in Edinburgh, the region of Scotland, speaking over his grave the long-remembered words, Here lies one who never feared the face of man. What was formerly St. Giles' churchyard, Edinburgh, is now part of Parliament Square, and the place of Knox's grave was formerly marked by a stone with a simple inscription, I.K., that is Johannes Knox's, 1572. The removal of the stone in recent years indicates how little the blessings which the Reformation brought are prized in the Scotland of today. Actually, it gets worse. Um, this happened after St. Houghton's time, but uh, his grave was paved over with a car park. Uh, the Scots bitterly, deeply, that is the average secular Scot today, and indeed uh, the members of the apostate Scottish churches, um, not all Scottish churches are apostate, but the Church of Scotland is a, is a, uh, a large festering mass of liberalism for the most part, but uh, in any event, uh, Knox is hated, absolutely despised at this point, and sadly, uh, the adulterous and murderous and... Uh, um, Papist, Queen Mary, Queen of Scots, is the hero. Uh, when I was a lad in Scotland, uh, it was commonplace walking past Scotland, uh, walking past Knox's uh, statue in Edinburgh. Uh, the commonplace was to spit upon it, uh, for they hated him and his religion. Um, the sad thing is, and most Americans don't realize this, Calvinism has essentially died in Scotland. The place where Presbyterianism was born is also the place where, or Scottish Presbyterianism, the Presbyterianism that we uh, practice here in the United States uh, is for the most part uh, a dead letter in, in Scotland. Uh, sad days and um, it's very dark over there. There are more Muslims in mosque uh, on Friday in Scotland uh, and Buddhists in their temples than there are uh, Presbyterians in church. Most Americans don't recognize that, but that's really the way of it. In any event, uh, if anybody has any final questions, I will take them now. And if there are not, I will bid you all adieu. Thank you so much for watching. Uh, hopefully tomorrow we'll talk about uh, the even sadder story of the Huguenots of France. Uh, God's people in that particular land were persecuted terribly. And we'll uh, read about how uh, they were afflicted. Although France's loss in the case of the Huguenots was America's gain as so many of them emigrated to these shores. Uh, as was the case with the Scots as well. But in any event, uh, I will see you tomorrow, and uh, may the Lord bless the rest of your day.